In continuation of our series on the first chapters of Genesis, we turn to Genesis chapter 4. The text for the sermon will be the first 12 verses of the chapter, 1 through 12. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt not thou be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch. And he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mehujael, and Mehujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bare Jabel. He was the father of such as dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubalcain, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron. And the sister of Tubalcain was Naamah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech. For I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. 
Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. Then Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, called his name Seth. For God, Seth said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth and to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. We read God's word that far. Focusing today on the first 12 verses of this chapter. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the conflict between Cain and Abel recorded in our text marks the beginning of the enmity that God promised he would put between the serpent and the woman, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, an enmity in which the serpent would seem victorious by bruising the heel of the seed of the woman, but in which God would ultimately triumph by bruising the head of the serpent. The story of Cain and Abel that we consider today is not a mere myth that was created by some ancient people in order to deter the great evil of murder or the great evil of murdering one's brother. But the story that we consider here was, is the account of a real event, an event that really, truly happened in this world, probably within the first century of human history. After Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, which is recorded in chapter 2, and after they were barred from the way of the Tree of Life by heavenly cherubim angels that God placed by the entrance to the garden together with a mysterious flaming sword that turned in every direction. They were banished, they were barred, and then they went on to live their lives outside of the Garden of Eden in a fallen, sin-cursed world. Sometime after that, and probably within the first century, the event of our text took place. Now, already back in the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. We do not read of that taking place before the fall, but after the fall. We first read of that in our text, where we are told that Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived. Now, Adam knew a lot about his wife before he knew her in the sense of our text. Adam knew about his wife that God had created her out of his own rib on the sixth day of creation, and that God had brought her to him to be a helper and a friend and a lover. He had also known that this woman, Eve, was beautiful in his eyes and precious in his heart, but he also knew that this woman had deceived him, had tempted him, And it was through that temptation that he had fallen into sin. Adam knew a lot about Eve. Eve also knew a lot about Adam. She knew that Adam was the first man that God created, that God had made her for him, 
and God had given them the blessing of love and marriage. She had known the love of her husband, but she also knew that this same man had blamed her for his sin when he ate of the fruit of the tree. And yet, God graciously preserved their marriage even after the fall, so that we can read in our text the good news, good news for Adam and Eve, that is, that Adam knew Eve, his wife, that is, he knew her now in the intimacy of love, in their marriage relationship, even after they had both fallen into sin and sinned against each other so grievously. He knew Eve, his wife, in the intimacy of marriage, and God gave them the gift of children. Two sons were born, and possibly those two sons were twins. Many commentators believe that Cain and Abel were twins. Cain was born first, and then Abel right afterward. They named the first little boy who was born Cain. And the name Cain means gotten. And so that explains why the text says that Eve said when he was born, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So she called him Cain, gotten. Because it was through the Lord's gift that she had gotten this child. And she calls him already a man, though he was only a baby boy, recognizing that in this child, God was continuing the human race and giving her seed. Then she bore her second son, and they called his name Abel. And Abel probably means vanity in the Hebrew language. And it's possible that whereas the first name was given to Cain in hopeful joy, I have gotten a man from the Lord. You can sense the joy and the hope in those words. They named the second baby Abel, vanity, as a testimony and a monument to the vanity of life that they had brought brought down upon themselves by their sin. Both Cain and Abel were born to Adam and Eve after the fall, and therefore they were both born with the original sin, guilt, and corruption of their parents. It was passed down to both of them. But only one of these two boys would be cleansed of his sin by faith in the coming Messiah. Let's consider the enmity between Cain and Abel. First of all, let's look at Abel's better offering. Secondly, Cain's wicked murder. And thirdly, God's just judgment. We read in the text about these two boys when they grew up. Abel was a keeper of sheep, verse 2, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Cain and Abel were the first human beings born into this world. Adam and Eve were created. Cain and Abel were born. That's contrary to theistic evolutionism, the view of many people who believe that Adam and Eve were not the first human beings on earth, but they were the first significant human beings on earth, and that before them there were thousands, even tens of thousands of other human beings in this long development of evolution, they would also then have to say that the story of Cain and Abel is a mere myth. But we believe that the scriptures are literally teaching us here that Abel and Cain were the first human beings born into the world. And because of that, they were born before all technological advancement that would take place thereafter. And we read about some of that later in the chapter. 
Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain and the various technological advancements that took place. Cain and Abel lived at the very dawn of history. None of that had happened yet. And therefore, they lived a very simple way of life with their parents. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. And those were both respectable ways of life. The Lord had told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it, subdue the earth, and have dominion over all the animals of the earth. So Cain took up the occupation of subduing the earth. He was a tiller of the ground. He plowed the ground somehow. And he planted seeds and he grew and raised those crops and harvested those crops. Abel was a keeper of sheep, a shepherd. He had dominion over the animals, over cattle. And the word for flock or sheep in the original simply refers to small cattle. It could have been sheep or goats or some other kind of small domesticated animals. Abel, a shepherd, Cain, a farmer, both respectable ways of life in God's eyes. That's not all. Cain and Abel grew up in the same home. They grew up in the same family. They were brothers. Adam and Eve were their parents, and they grew up in that home and were taught by their parents about the one true God, Jehovah, who had created the heavens and the earth, the stars, the sun, the moon, and all creatures. They learned about this great God who commanded their parents to obey him, but they also learned about the sin of their parents. Adam and Eve certainly taught their boys that they had sinned and eaten the forbidden fruit and that the punishment for that sin was death and that they were all guilty and all deserved death. But surely their parents also taught them that glorious mother promise that God will send the seed of the woman and this seed will bruise the head of the serpent and win the victory for his people. They must have learned from their parents too about that marvelous act that God performed for them. In chapter 3 we read of it. In verse 21, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. Remember, they were naked and they were ashamed and they tried to cover their nakedness. But then God made coats of skins. How did he do that? God shed the blood of perfectly good animals that he had created. And he took the furs and skins of those animals off of their bodies and wrapped them around Adam and Eve. And surely Adam and Eve told their boys about that act of God, shedding the blood of animals as a sign of clothing them, covering their nakedness, as a picture of a future shedding of much more precious blood by which they would be clothed with a righteousness that was not their own. Surely they were taught all these things by their parents as they grew up. They must have been taught also that they were supposed to follow God's example. God made the first sacrifice. They must follow his example as they wait and anticipate that much greater sacrifice to come. They must also shed the blood of animals and offer them up in hope for that truly atoning sacrifice in time to come. They had the same godly upbringing. But in verse 3, 
we read that in the process of time came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. These two brothers in the process of time brought two very different offerings. Watch them as they bring their offerings. There goes Cain, carrying in his arms a bundle of sheaves of grain and beautiful stalks and ears of corn, beautiful corn, and perhaps tomatoes, peppers, and clusters of grapes and figs, beautiful, luscious, delicious fruits and vegetables and grains that he had grown by his own hard work, sweat, and efforts out in the fields. Cain lays down his fruits upon his altar and looking entirely genuine and sincere and pious, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and offers these fruits of the ground to Jehovah God. And from all outward appearances, it looks that Cain is doing a good thing, offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. As would the priests do in Israel many, many years later, bringing the thank offerings and the peace offerings and the wave offerings and all the others. Now watch Abel as he goes to his flock and snatches one of the firstlings one of the firstborn little lambs or goats. He picks up that little lamb and carries it on his shoulders over to his altar. He lays it on that altar. And now he takes out a knife or some other sharp tool and he cuts into that precious little lamb, shedding its blood so that the blood flows over the altar He slits and opens up that creature in a gory and gruesome sacrifice. And he sets fire to it and watches as the little lamb burns. And not just certain parts of the lamb, but we are told also the fat, also the fat portions. Those were the goodly portions of fat and meat that they would like to eat. He burned the whole lamb and he watched as it smoked up toward heaven. And he lowered his head. Now read the Lord's evaluation of those two sacrifices. We are told in verse 4, And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. We could translate the text this way. The Lord gazed at Abel and his offering. The Lord gazed at him. The Lord looked at him. He watched him steadfastly and with great interest and pleasure as he watched Abel bring that sacrifice. But he turned away his eyes from Cain. He would not gaze at Cain. He would not look at him. He was repulsed. He was disgusted with the sacrifice of Cain. It was as if the offering of Abel, the smoke of the burning lamb, went up to heaven and it was a sweet-smelling aroma and fragrance in the nostrils of God that filled him with pleasure and delight. But when he looked at Cain's sacrifice, 
It was ugly. It was disgusting. And he could not stand it. Why? What was so different about the two sacrifices of the brothers? Consider two answers to that question, both of which are true. In the first place, we have here at the very dawn of history an example of the difference between those in the church who bring mere formal worship, mere external and formal worship, and those who bring heartfelt, genuine worship. The Lord Jesus would quote the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15 with these words, These people draw nigh to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And Jesus teaches us that the sacrifices, the offerings, the worship, the religion of people who are in the church, within the sphere of the covenant, which is merely external, merely formal, merely a going through the motions, is an abomination to God. God hates that kind of worship. It might appear very beautiful on the outside, just like Cain with his offerings of beautiful grain and corn and grapes and figs and tomatoes and beautiful, fresh, well-grown crops. It might look very beautiful on the outside, but it's repulsive to God. It's the merely outward religion of someone who comes to church, sits in the pew, opens the psalter, sings the psalms, listens to the prayers and the preaching, but his heart is not in it. He cares nothing for it. He honors God with his lips. He draws near to God with his mouth, but his heart is far from him. That's true. That's part of the answer. But why is it, then, that there are people within the church who bring such merely formal worship and there are those who bring heartfelt, thankful worship to God of the firstlings of their flock, the firstfruits of their increase, bringing their very best to the Lord in thankfulness, unlike Cain, who, if we are not told, brought the firstfruits of his crops. The difference is that the one has faith in his heart and the other does not. God's own explanation of this event is found in Hebrews 11, verse 4, where we read, By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Cain brought this sacrifice to God, not only as a merely external worship, but he brought it to God without faith. As we saw this morning, there is no good works that are, that are performed without faith. Cain had no faith in his heart. He was a proud, wicked unbeliever, a hypocrite. But everybody has some kind of faith in their heart. He did not have true faith in his heart. What he had in his heart was a counterfeit faith. He had faith in himself. If man doesn't put faith and trust in God and in the coming Savior, then whom does he trust? Whom does he put his faith in? He puts his faith 
in idols, and he puts his faith in himself. Cain was trying to earn his salvation by his own works. Cain was trusting in his own efforts, in his own hands, in his own arms, to save him, to obtain righteousness for himself. He thought that he could do that by the sweat of his brow, by his own hard work and efforts. He brought those vegetables and fruits and grains to God with a bright smile, lifting them up to Jehovah in the vain thought that Jehovah would receive this offering as his righteousness. That Jehovah would receive this offering and grant him a blessing, grant him prosperity. Cain, as an ungodly unbeliever, had no interest in the Lord. He had no interest in heaven. He had no interest in God's covenant. All that he cared about was a prosperous, pleasing, long life here on this earth. He was bringing those vegetables in the hope of appeasing God. He was bringing them in the thought that God better receive this offering. He must receive it. Look at the hard work that I've done. Look at this beautiful sacrifice. Look at this beautiful grain and vegetables. I have earned it. I deserve to be acquitted. I deserve to be given righteousness. I deserve prosperity. I deserve to live a long life. God better give me that righteousness and he better leave me alone so that I can go back home now and live my life as I please. Remember, he didn't bring the first fruits of his crops, beautiful crops, but they weren't the first fruits. The first fruits were back at home, waiting for him to go home and devour those with his family, to party and, and revel and to have pleasures of this life. And he was hoping that through this sacrifice he could get God off his back and go back to living as he wanted. But Abel had faith. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. Faith was given to Abel because Abel was one of God's children whom he loved and chose in Jesus Christ. Abel had faith that God would provide him a savior. That faith of Abel means that Abel also believed himself to be a sinner. The instruction he received from his parents in the home, he believed. He believed that he had inherited the sins of his father and mother. He believed that he had their pride. He had their lusts, their selfishness, their disobedience. He knew that he was a filthy sinner in desperate need of a Savior. He believed that the punishment of sin is death and that he deserved it. He believed that he needed a Savior desperately to take that penalty of death upon himself, to shed his blood in Abel's place, or there was no hope for righteousness or salvation, none whatsoever. He knew that he needed to be clothed, just like his parents, in those robes of righteousness which would come from someone else. Abel had faith in the promise of the Savior, the promise of of the seed, the lamb, the real, true, firstborn lamb who would shed his own blood to save him from his sins and death. That was the difference between those two sacrifices. 
And that's why we are told that God had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. The reason is not because God looked at Abel and he approved him and he accepted his sacrifice because of what Abel did, because of Abel's works, because of Abel's sacrifice, but God had respect to Abel and to his sacrifice because of what that sacrifice pointed to. When God saw the sacrifice of Abel, that lamb, that precious lamb, its blood flowing over that altar, God saw Christ. He saw Christ on that altar. He saw his only begotten son dying on the cross, shedding his blood for Abel and for his sins, And he saw Abel receiving that righteousness by faith. But when God looked at Cain with his beautiful vegetables and fruits, God was displeased with Cain for his proud effort to save himself, his entitled attitude of thinking he deserves God to do something for him. Not only did God have that respect, but God testified of it to the brothers. We don't necessarily read that in the text, although we do read of God speaking to Cain in verse 6. But if you go to Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says that Abel obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And that means that God spoke to Cain and Abel out loud, so that they could hear God's testimony. God said to them, Abel, I receive your sacrifice, and I accept you for the sake of the lamb whose blood was shed. But Cain, I reject your sacrifice. You are condemned because you sought salvation by your own works and thought that you could save yourself and did not know yourself as a needy sinner. When God gave that testimony, that was really the preaching of the gospel and the warning of judgment. It was an implicit call to repentance to Cain and a call to perseverance to Abel. But that testimony did not humble Cain or bring him to repentance. Look at Cain in the text after that. Cain was very wroth, angry, furious, enraged, burning with hot wrath. That's what that means. And his countenance fell. Sometimes our countenance falls. Our face is bowed down. We look down. But there are other reasons for that. Sometimes we look down in humility like the publican in the temple He bowed his face to the ground and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Cain was not bowing his head in that way. His face was bowed down to the ground because he was quivering with rage. His face was wrinkled. His eyes were on fire. His nose, his eyebrows were all furrowed. He was seething at the mouth and his body was shaking with rage. He was wroth. And the Lord spoke to him, Why art thou wroth? 
God was not asking that question because he didn't know the answer. God knows everything. He never asks a question because he needs to find out information. He asks a question in order to expose something and in order to, often, in order to rebuke something. Why are you wroth? You shouldn't be wroth. What's the matter with you, Cain? You have no reason to be angry. After all, Cain was not angry at himself. He should have been seething in wrath toward himself for his sinfulness, his foolishness, his pride. How foolish have I been? I knew better than this. I was taught by my parents the kind of offering we were supposed to bring. I was taught to look to the coming Savior, and here I am proudly going about trying to establish my own righteousness. But no, he was not angry with himself. He was angry with God. And he could not even lift up his face toward God who was speaking to him. He bows his head and he seethes in rage toward God. Oh, the foolishness of the sinner. Why are you so angry? God asked him. He was angry with God because God had rejected his sacrifice. He believed God must receive this sacrifice. I deserve righteousness. That's what he believed. He believed that in his heart. That's why he's so angry. God rejected his sacrifice. He felt humiliated in the eyes of his brother Abel. Why are you so angry, Cain? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Verse 7. Of course, if you do well, If you do what is good, if you do what is right, you will be accepted, you will be justified, you will be approved. If you come by faith, if you come surrendering all of your abilities, all of your works, you come by faith, knowing yourself to be a sinner, and you trust in the Lord to save you from your sins, you will be justified. But the fact that Abel, or that Cain, was not accepted by God is the proof that he had not done well. And Cain, who are you to tell God what he must do? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. That was God's warning to Cain. Cain, if you do well, you will be accepted. If you do not do well, be warned. Sin is right there at the door, like a lion or a tiger crouching on its paws, right at the door, just waiting to pounce on you, Cain, just waiting to devour you. Sin wants to take complete control and lead you where you never thought you would go. Sin desires you, Cain. It desires you. Sin will destroy you. It will drive you on and on and on into deeper and deeper places of destruction in this life and the life to come. And you will rule over it, Cain. You will rule over it. And God didn't mean by that that Cain would master his sin, that he would overcome his sin and conquer it and subdue it in that sense of ruling over it. But God meant to say, you will be the nurturer of sin. You will be the lover of sin. You will be a little king in your little sinful kingdom. 
And all of your little precious sins will be all of your subjects. And you will rule over them and manage them for the rest of your life and then perish for those sins. That's what God said to him. But even that testimony of God and that warning of God did not humble him, but hardened him. Let's watch Cain again. There he is, talking with Abel, his brother. And you see them, two brothers, standing there, talking to each other. What are they talking about? One would wonder, is Abel patiently and humbly trying to urge his brother to repent of the sin and turn to the Lord? Or is Cain giving his brother a piece of his mind, filled with wrath, Is he now directing his anger from God to his brother? To his goody-goody brother? His brother who always does everything right? His brother who has received the approval of the Lord? What are they talking about? Is Cain now pouring out his contempt? Whatever they discussed, we don't know. But we see there that Cain is still boiling with rage. And now Abel goes out into the field among his sheep in the flock. Or perhaps there's straw walking together among the crops of Cain out in the field. And Abel, when he's not looking, suddenly Cain rises up behind him with something sharp in his hand and brings it down upon his brother, stabs him in the chest or in the back or pummels him on the head again and again. He pummels him, he stabs him, he slices him, he shreds him. And the blood of his brother begins to pour out of his body. It is splattered all over Cain's clothes, splattered all over the ground, and it begins to sink into the earth. As the Lord says, His blood crieth unto me from the ground. And Cain, we can imagine, calmly takes the body of his brother and disposes of it, removes his blood-soaked clothes, And goes about his work as before. There was the first murder of a human being in the history of the world. But as we said in the beginning, this is not merely a story that is meant to deter us from the horrible evil of murder, or even from the horrible evil of premeditated murder of one's brother, fratricide, a terrible, terrible evil. But the passage that we're looking at here is the first revelation of the outburst of the enmity of the serpent and his seed toward the woman and her seed. What we are seeing here is Satan at work, seeking to destroy the people of God And it's very possible that Satan thought that Abel was the seed, capital S, the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah who was to come. He saw the righteousness of Abel. He saw the faith and the godliness of Abel. Perhaps the serpent thought, this is the Messiah. He must be killed and inspired his brother to do a terrible deed. But if so, Satan soon realized this was not the Messiah And so this became the beginning of all of the serpent's attempts, 
of persecuting the church and the people of God throughout the ages for thousands of years. What do we learn then from the text about Satan's persecution of God's people? We learn that he is filled with rage. We learn that he hates God and he hates God's people. He wants to destroy God's people. We also learn that Satan will not only persecute God's people through the heathen, through the pagan people out in the nations of the world, he would use them as well. He would use Babylon, he would use Assyria, he would use Greece and Rome to persecute God's people. But we see in the text, Satan will also use men or women whom we call our brothers and sisters possibly even our blood brothers and sisters. He will use them. He may use them. And also those whom we call brothers or sisters in the church. This is the first example of Satan using one confessing believer. Cain was a confessing believer. He claimed to be a believer to persecute and kill a true believer. Esau would attempt to do that toward his brother Jacob. Saul would attempt to kill David, chasing him here and there and everywhere through the hills of Judea. Judas Iscariot, who confessed to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, would betray him for silver. In the Roman Catholic Church, in the days of the Reformation, Men who claimed to be brothers would persecute and slay Protestant Abels by the thousands and their blood soaked into the earth as they were hung from the gallows, burned at the stake, and tortured in various ways. Cain murdering Abel. That's what that is. Because this was not a murder like other murders, Murder takes place in the world all of the time. The ungodly murder the ungodly, and they have selfish reasons for that. They want something, or they're afraid of something, or they're protecting something, and so they murder. But this murder was a religious act. It was due to spiritual hatred. Cain hated Abel because of his more excellent sacrifice. That's why he killed him. There's no other reason. He had nothing to gain from it. He simply envied and hated his brother because his brother's works were righteous and his were wicked. His brother was a believer in God and he was not. His brother brought the firstling of his flock. His brother was trying to bring wholehearted devotion to his God, the firstfruits. Cain hated him for it. And so it could be that we too would be persecuted someday by men or women who claim to be Christians like us. Jesus speaks of that when he says that brother will turn against brother and mother and father against their children. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. That will happen in the last days. But let us see the significance of this event also as an admonition to us to love one another as brothers and sisters in the church. 
The Apostle John makes that application. In 1 John 3, verses 11 and 12, the Apostle writes to the church of Jesus Christ that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. That's why. So the Apostle exhorts us, love one another. Don't be like Cain. Don't be envious of your brothers or sisters in the church. Don't hate your brother when you look upon his life and you see someone more righteous than yourself. Don't hate your brother when he comes to you, when he calls you to repentance. Don't hate your brother when he points out the wickedness of your way, the sinfulness of your walk, when he calls you lovingly to a godly walk of life, when he tries to help you. Don't hate him for that. And that's what Abel was trying to do, wasn't it? They were talking. It's very possible that Abel was urging his brother in love for him. Don't do this, brother. Don't go this route, brother. And Cain responded in wrath toward Abel and killed him. When our brother is living a a life that is godly, and we see in our life that we fall short compared to our brother, or at least we think that in our minds, we don't envy the brother for that. We thank God for his work in that brother's life, and we pray that God will work in our life too that we may walk in righteousness, that we may walk in love. Let us love one another, not as Cain, who slew his brother. That's part of the significance of the text. The main significance is certainly that there's comfort for the people of God in the face of persecution. Because we will face persecution in the last days. There will be one more Cain who will come, and that's the Antichrist. He also will pose as a brother, as a Christian. But he will be a Cain who will seek to slay God's people. But what is the end of the matter? God's just judgment. God spoke to Cain again. Verse 9, he said to Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? Again, God knew where Abel was. But he asked that question in order to expose Cain's wickedness and to hold him without excuse and to bring accusation and judgment upon him. Where is Abel thy brother? Now listen to the astounding reply of this stubborn and obstinate man. I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? First of all, that was a lie. He lied To God who knows all things. I know not where he is. You know very well where he is. Imagine lying to the face of God. But then he has the impudence, the boldness, to offer this vile and blasphemous reply. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? Do you hear in that term, 
an, an attempt to escape from God, an attempt to minimize his sin, an attempt to basically spit in God's face and tell him to get lost. That's what he's doing. Am I responsible for watching over my brother? Leave me alone. I had nothing to do with it. That's his response to God when confronted by his sin. We can see that the response of faith and repentance is a miracle of grace. When we repent of our sins, that's not our work. That's the miracle of God's grace in us, humbling us, softening us. This is the way we are by nature. And God said to him, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. God's judgment is just. God reveals to us in this passage that there is no escape from him for the sinner. The sinner cannot escape from God. You cannot go about your life killing people, hating people, and doing all manner of evil and escape. There is judgment. There will be judgment for every sin, for every evil. God sees everything. God hears everything. The blood of thousands and millions of people cries out to him from the ground. And there will be justice for every single person who was unjustly murdered. For every child of God who was wickedly killed and martyred for the sake of Christ, there will be judgment. There was judgment upon Cain. Cursed is the ground, God said, for your sake. Cain was a farmer, a tiller of the ground. The ground was the source of his livelihood. The ground was the source of his wealth. The ground was everything for him. And God said, that ground is now cursed. Or rather, you are cursed. And when you till the ground, it will not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. That great increase of harvest that you received before, you will not receive that kind of a harvest anymore. You will have poverty. You will have crop failure. You will have loss. And you will spend the rest of your days running here and there as a fugitive and a vagabond because nobody will want you. Nobody will want to be your friend. You'll be an outcast. You'll be a hated man, a marked man. And Cain complained, This is too much. This punishment is more than I can bear. This is not right. This is not just. And so the Lord said, All right. And God put a mark upon Cain. Verse 15. And God said to Cain, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And some people think that there is an evidence that God had compassion on Cain. But do we really believe God had compassion on this wicked murderer, this persecutor of his beloved child, Abel? There's no compassion in that. There's no real minimizing of the sentence and the judgment there. But God put a mark upon Cain somehow so that people would see him and they would know that if they killed Cain, they would refuse receive a sevenfold greater judgment. God is revealing here the greatness of his judgment against sinners. And he is presenting Cain to mankind as an example, a notorious wicked murderer and an example 
and a warning. And besides that, God is by that mark merely prolonging Cain's misery in the earth before his everlasting misery in hell. Cain would live the rest of his life fleeing here and there as a fugitive and a vagabond. And because of that mark, people wouldn't kill him. But he would go on in his misery. The end of the story is victory for the seed of the woman. It doesn't seem like it at first. It seems that the serpent wins a victory here. He destroys the seed of the woman. Cain murders Abel. Abel dies. Cain lives on. And from our earthly human perspective, we would think Cain was clearly the winner in this struggle and Abel was the loser. Poor Abel. But what's the reality? Cain went on living a miserable life as a fugitive and vagabond. Abel was the first soul in heaven. The very moment that his brother shed his blood, his soul departed and was gently carried up to glory by the Lord so that Abel opened his eyes, the first man to see those hosts of angels around the throne of God, the first one in his soul to see God sitting on his throne in all his glory. Abel was more than a conqueror through Christ who loved him. That's the end of the story. This is the great spiritual battle of the ages. And always the serpent rises up and seems so powerful and frightening and attacks the people of God. But he never, never, never is victorious. Because at that moment when he destroys God's people, they are snatched up into glory in that instant. And so, as we read in Hebrews 11, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by the which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Abel was the first human to die. And throughout all of the ages of history, Abel has been speaking, though he was dead, speaking through this scripture, speaking to you and me today. What does Abel have to say to us? A word of tremendous encouragement to us. Do not be afraid, Abel says. I've been there. I've been there, hated and attacked and killed. Do not be afraid of those who can kill your body but cannot kill your soul. Do not be afraid of them. God is with you as he was with me. They can never snatch you out of God's hands. I am a a living testimony to that, Abel says to us. I'm now in glory and I'm waiting for you and all the rest of God's people to join me. Abel assures us, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. And blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Great is their reward in heaven. Amen. Our Father, we give thee thanks for that testimony of Abel, which is thy testimony. We thank thee for the precious comfort that we have the victory. Though we may lose our life on this earth, we will gain it in heaven. Give us that comfort today. May that encourage us as we go forth this week to work 
and in all of our responsibilities of this life. 